Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. How can you link hostage negotiating with building better relationships with your family, spouse, partner, or kids? How can you keep your emotions in check when situations become intense? Gary Nesner spent over 30 years in the FBI, 10 of which were as the chief crisis negotiator. A few of you may know Gary from the Netflix series Waco, as Gary was one of the negotiators between the FBI and the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas. From dealing with highly intense situations, Gary has turned his experience and expertise into helping people build better relationships through active listening. The ability to respond to someone shows that you are indeed listening. Gary uses M&M candy on how to do this. Consider that in every conversation you have with somebody, the chocolate center is the story. What are they trying to tell you? While the outer shell of the candy is a reflection of emotion, how are they feeling? Gary points out that it costs nothing to be a good listener, especially with our spouse, partner, or kids. As in most hostage situations that Gary was involved with, people want to be heard, and our families are no different. From Gary's perspective, this cornerstone of being a good listener and communicator is self-control. Think of a teeter-totter. When our emotions are high, our rational behavior goes down. So we must focus on our emotions and lowering our own temperature when situations become intense. Please enjoy my conversation with Gary Nesner. So Gary Nesner, Nesner, welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. You notice I almost screwed that up. We were just talking about that before we recorded. (laughs) Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. So... Where I would like to start, because I would imagine most of my audience does not know who Gary Nessner is, but I actually found your work through a New York Times article, and the title of that, and I'll link to it in the show notes, was Become a Better Listener, Your Family Will Thank You. And uh, that grabbed my attention uh, pretty fast, because as we were talking off off air, um, I have this unique situation where I'm a, a dad of a set of almost 12-year-old triplets and a, and a 10-year-old. So um, I'm always trying to find ways to be a better parent and a lot of that and husband. And a lot of that stems from trying to listen, which uh, I don't know, I, I'm hoping to gain a lot of knowledge from you today on, on this topic, Gary. But why don't we start with your background, which is just unbelievably fascinating because you used to be a lead hostage negotiator with the FBI. Well, I I, um, I spent 30 years in the FBI, and uh, I always joke around and say my parents gave me to the FBI at a young age, and uh, um, it's something I wanted to do since I was a, a young kid. And you know, through serendipity, my my dreams came true, and uh, I, I just loved the career. It was fascinating and constantly challenging and interesting and all that, everything I could have hoped for. But fairly early in my career, I got involved in what was then a new and emerging discipline within law enforcement, and that's hostage negotiations, which was um, started by the New York City Police Department and uh, uh, quickly uh, uh, adopted by the FBI. And then we devoted a lot of uh, resources uh, into finding out more about how this worked in a scientific manner and spreading the word around the world and uh, around the United States and and gaining insights from the experiences of police officers. And and so I spent... uh, uh, you know, the first uh, 10 or 12 years as a negotiator b- being a part-time function in addition to uh, investigating terrorism. Much of my career was devoted towards uh, overseas hijackings of Americans in the Middle East primarily. Uh, but then in 1990, I became a, a full-time negotiator. At that time, there was only three in the FBI. Um, 
and uh, the rest of the 350 negotiators, it's, a, it's an auxiliary secondary function to whatever other investigative assignment they have. But in that capacity, um, you know, went through a lot of situations, prison riots, uh, right-wing militia standoffs, uh, religious zealot sieges like Waco, the Montana Freeman siege. I flew down to Peru when the Japanese ambassador's uh, residence was taken over by uh, terrorists and initially Americans were held. So worked a lot of hijackings, worked over a hundred kidnappings of American citizens abroad. So from those collective lessons, um, you know, I've, I've tried to formulate what are the key elements of effective communication that allowed us as law enforcement negotiators in very desperate situations to convince people not to harm themselves or someone else and to uh, cooperate and surrender peacefully. And the success rate for that is in, in the mid to high 90s, which is quite phenomenal considering the, the risk. And so that got me to think, well, you know, if, uh, if it works in these kinds of situations, these skills that we sort of really honed in on, wouldn't they apply more broadly in life and, and work? And, and, I, and I firmly believe they do. So I wrote my book, Stalling for Time, in uh, 2010 by Random House. And um, it's, it's done very well. And it tells about my journey and the journey of negotiations and uh, covers some uh, of the, the major cases I worked and the lessons we learned in those experiences. Um, you know, I, re I retired from the FBI in 03. I became a consultant for control risk and international risk consultancy, and then um, wrote my book. Um, and um, then since I've basically done corporate and law enforcement speaking engagements, my book was used uh, in 2018 uh, as part of the basis for the uh, six-part uh, Waco miniseries by the Paramount Network that was later on Netflix and now is on Amazon. Prime. They just finished filming a second season. And again, the actor Michael Shannon is playing me, not too shabby, twice <laughs> Academy Award nominated uh, actor and a great guy and become a good friend. And, uh, and also Netflix is working on a major uh, documentary about Waco. Both of those will be out next year. So that's uh, kind of how I keep busy these days and um, do a lot of podcasts and interviews like this one. So have at it. So yeah, and that's the thing is I've I've listened to a, a few of the podcasts that you've been on, which has been uh, great. And I think as we were as we we're talking off air, you know, a large I think population of the people that listen to my show are parents. And one of the things that I think drew me to your work was you know how how do you tie hostage hostage negotiating with building better relationships with your family in particular, your spouse in, in your, your, your children, like, how do you, how do you make that connection? You kind of alluded to that. Like you had all this experience negotiating in these really high risk, high tense situations. And now you've, you, you've kind of pivoted to, you know, everyday normal life people like, like me in my situation. And like I mentioned to you, like, Every every day when I get four kids off to the school bus is is a is a journey and and today it wasn't a very good one because I ended up having to have a stern conversation with one of my boys about what a healthy lunch was and so he ended up walking to the bus stop in tears which never makes you feel very good. Well, you, you know, uh, as a parent, you're you're constantly tested. You never live up to your own expectations, but sometimes I think we're a bit hard on ourselves and expecting. Too much, you know. In in the seventies and eighties, I started to hear the term "super mom," which was very appropriate. I mean, uh, modern day women not only were they expected to do the traditional tasks of a a wife and mother, but they had to go to work. <laughs> so you know, they did the majority of the cleaning and the majority of the childcare and running around to doctor's appointments and uh, and you know, and it was truly um, appropriate to recognize that this new challenge that they faced. But I also felt as though there was a category that didn't get any attention. That's super dad. Because, you know, if you look back to, to my generation, I mean, I don't think my father knew where the kitchen was. I mean, uh, you know, he might have passed through it casually now <laughs> and then. Um, you know, and historically, you know, the, the role of men was seen to do the outside work, you know, bring home the money and everything else was left to mama. And uh, 
But yet today, certainly my generation even, and I see it more with my son and my son-in-laws, um, I mean, they really pitch in. They're, they're you know, more fully engaged in every aspect of cleaning the home, preparing meals, taking care of the children, you know, taking days off when the kids are sick. And these are things that just, you know, just didn't happen uh, 40, 40 years ago. So, you know, I think when you think about all those things in total, I think parents are under an incredible amount of strain, you know, and, and you always have a lot going. And there's a curse. You have kids typically at a time of life when your careers demand the most from you. I mean, I'm working on an average day, 10 hours a day as a negotiator in the FBI. Well, you throw in an hour commute each way, and I'm gone from home 12 hours. You know, and you come home and, uh, you know, you've got to play, for, play with the kids and, you know, help with dinner, give them a bath, read a story. And then you're toast. You're absolutely wasted. And it just starts over and over and over. And endlessly, I joke my kids now, they said, oh, I've got so much going on. I said, nah, don't worry. It only lasts 20 years or so. <laughs> really throwing a, throwing a fuel on the fire for them. But, you know, it, it's just really tough. It's easy to lose your temper. It's easy to lose your patience. But, you know, uh, the thing I always think about, um, and this touches me, and sometimes when I give a speech, I talk about this song, and I choke up. It's Cats in the Cradle by Harry Chapin. It's a very mm -hmm. famous song. And it's a beautifully insightful song about, you know, this, this kid always wants his father's time and attention. And dad, of course, is, whenever that occurs, is always busy doing something else and says, yeah, we'll, we'll do that later. We'll do that later. And at the end of life, when the father's old and retired and wants time with his son, the son says, hey, sorry, dad, I'm too busy. You know, I got this going and that going. And, you know, the old saying about what goes around comes around. And it's, it's a sad but true reality for, for many people. I think the key to being a good parent is to not be so focused on the individual experiences and interactions, but the overall time you spend with your child and, and the love and devotion while I was gone a lot in my career, I, I, I think I was a pretty good dad when I was home. You know, I, I'm, I certainly didn't live up to my own expectations or I uh, certainly realized I, I probably could have been far better. But, you know, I think that's important. Don't be hard on yourself. Realize that life is pulling you 30 different ways. Don't carry around this uh, baggage full of guilt. You know, why, why can't I juggle 30 things at one time? You know, uh, just do what you can, you know, attend to your job and your career. That's important. You know, your financial security for your family, but try to spend as much time as you can with the kids and realize that um, that's not always going to be good time. You know, people always talk, oh, you know, I don't spend much time with my kid, but it's quality time. I said, well, where's all the crappy time? Because, <laughs> you know, unless you're a super person, I, I don't know how you pull that off because there is just times where kids going through the process of learning how to be adults, you know, misbehave, throw fits, um, are inattentive, unresponsive, you know, on and on and on and on. And that pushes all the buttons. And because of the history that we have with our family, they know those buttons very well. They sure and, do. <laughs> you know, and, and I think I mentioned to you off air, you know, uh, negotiations doesn't work at home. Well, uh, that's not really true. But sometimes I found you know, as a negotiator, dealing with a gunman who I've never met before and didn't know anything about, creating a relationship of trust with that person can actually happen much quicker uh, than if you're trying to resolve a, a nagging conflict with your family. You, know, you want your kid to do this activity. They don't want to do it, whatever it is. But there's history there. You've been going through this argument for weeks, for months or whatever. And, you know, you each know each other's buttons and trigger points, and that all enters into the equation. So, I mean, I think if I had overall advice for parents, and it's just spend time with them. I do it now with, I have seven grandchildren, age 10 and under, and I get to see them, you know, frequently. And, you know, I just marvel now at the development of the human being. I mean, things I didn't probably remember to recognize when my own kids were growing up because I was so busy. Now in my grandchildren, I sit there and marvel at the acquisition of speech and language and culture and mobility when they're younger. It's freaking fascinating. And, and, and it's a never end, endless story. Now, do they misbehave? You, you betcha. 
But what I try to do now is when they come up to me and say, Poppy, uh, would you help me do this? Would you do that? I try my best to drop whatever I'm doing and give them that time. And I'm sure I fail to meet their expectations uh, more often than not. But I, I like to think I try to be there and be attentive to them. And, you know, we live on a beautiful lake and we have a nice dock and we swim off the dock and, you know, the kids are in the water and there's always got to be an adult around them. But, you know, sometimes just being in the water with them, they're playing with each other, splashing, kicking, but just the fact that you're there, it's, it means a lot. And it's hard to um, quantify that. You know, what, what is, what is the value of that? Your presence is worth a lot. It, it's it, your time is worth more than any present you give them for Christmas or for their birthday or contribution to their college fund. They just want you, you know, and, and of course it's, it's a much easier task as a grandparent. I, I don't, <laughs> I, I think everybody's aware of that. We're the, we're the ones that spoil them, fill them full of sugar and give them back to their parents or, you know, whatever the old joke is about that. But there's a bit of truth to that, by the way, but uh, yeah, I, I just think today, uh, a lot of the causes of our stress and anxieties, our psychological problems is we see through the media uh, people that seemingly have this perfect life. You know, they got their act together. Look how great, the wonderful parents are always smiling when I see them. Everybody's happy. Their kids aren't throwing a fit. Well, you're not around them 24 hours a day. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they have the same issues and flaws and challenges you do. So I guess my overall advice, don't, don't be so hard on yourself. Just be attentive and be realistic about your expectations about, you know, what we can do. It's, you know, the other thing I, I note is um, men are particularly guilty at this. We, based on the way our fathers generally treat us, we go into lecture mode pretty quickly, you know. So you've got this young kid and you say, well, let me explain to you the value of purchasing a toy and how much work has to be done. But, you know, meanwhile, the kid's eyes glass over. They have no idea what you're talking about. You know, (laughs) so the lectures that we are prone to give, for lack of a better term, I mean, I used to dread those when my father gave those to me. I, you know, I'd go up to him and say, dad, I, I, I got a date tonight. uh, Can I borrow, you know, five bucks for, you know, the movie theater, whatever like that. And I'd have to sit down and go through a half hour lecture on the value of money. And how is going to pay this back? And what sort of interest rate there would be involved? I mean, after a while, I just said, never mind. I'll go earn it before I ask somebody out, you know? Um, But, you know, kids don't really listen to that stuff. What your kids do is they watch you. When you and your wife go out to a restaurant with the family, how do you treat the waitstaff? Do you hold the door open for your, your wife or some elderly lady coming out that's using a cane? I mean, are you polite? Are you respectful? that's what they're going to copy. You don't have to sit down and give them a lecture on being polite and respectful. They see it and they absorb it. And even though they may hate you at a certain point in life or think they do, they still copy that and mimic it. And that's the most powerful lesson you can impart in, in, in my opinion. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point, Gary, because I, I often wonder, because I feel like my, my kids at this point are picking, are, are following like the the bad traits of mine. And I'm like, I wonder if they ever going to pick up the good traits. And, and a lot of it comes back to working. Like I work quite a bit um, that my kids and, and, and Teresa, my wife know how passionate I am about what I do as a, as a uh, financial advisor and how I pour into my, I call them my Tama families. And, you know, I always get the question like, dad, you work a lot. And I'm like, yeah, well, this is why I work a lot. I, I work to help support other families um, that, that need, you know, my help, you know, I work hard to, you know, have the lifestyle that we have. And so in the back of my mind, I'm, I'm always hopeful that they see that as a, as a positive and, and something that they, they pick up on. I don't necessarily see it right now. I see it a little bit in, in my oldest daughter, but it's still, it's still a struggle. No, I mean, I think it, it, it will manifest itself later. And here, here's an example of that. How many times in your life uh, or, or Teresa's life have you caught yourself saying something and the first thing you say is, oh, my God, my father used to say that to me. <laughs> all the time. All, all the, time. the time. We all do that, right? What that is a manifestation of is the fact that you, you were watching mom or dad way back. And in turn, your kids will watch you. Yes, you probably spend too much time at work sometimes, but 
but that's not all a negative. I mean, your parents see you're uh, committed, industrious, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, you feel passionate about your work and, and what you're doing. And I mean, that has transferable value as well. I mean, you think of the opposite. What if they're, they got a lazy bum of a father that sits around and never does anything. That's, that's the model. You know, it's, it's no surprise that, um, I mean, I've known great parents who end up with troubled kids and I've known, uh, kids that come out great and their parents are all dysfunctional, but generally speaking, you know, you reap what you sow. And, and if, if parents are attentive and, and giving and they get the love back, the kids are may be at a point in development where they don't walk up to you every day and say, mom and dad, you're fantastic. I love you. Thank you for all these lessons, but they're getting it nonetheless, you know? And, and I think, um, you know, we went through that when our, you know, our kids went off to school and college and everything. And, and the fact that they enjoy seeing us so much now and hanging around with us. And we share so many good times as adults that that's proof in the pudding, you know, right there. And, and I think, um, You'll get to that point too. You know, it won't be. In fact, it's very quick. You won't. Really, you're a twelve-year-old triplet. So <laughs> you're going to blink an eye, and next thing you know, you know, you're you're setting up weddings, and you're you're you know you're you're draining your college funds, and you're you know buying cars, and they're off. You know, your your daughter drives off, and you say, "Oh, I'm going to get a fender bender in the parking lot." Your sons drive off, and you worry all night long that they're going to kill somebody. You know, and right, it's just the way it goes. You never. I don't think you ever stop being a parent. I mean, I I certainly haven't. My kids are, you know, adults. They're 42, 40, and 38. And, uh, but I failed with my son. He went on to be a Navy SEAL. And it's just, you know, he went to the dark side. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) that is very ironic that you made that comment, Gary, about you're, you're always a parent because I remember sitting in the NICU on December 31st, 20. 10, the year my trip. So my triplets were born um, on December 9th of, of, of 2010. And I remember the head doctor in the NICU telling us a story about how her daughter was in uh, Chicago for New Year's Eve and how she was just completely worried about her. And her daughter was like 22, 23, completely responsible young lady. And she's like, just know parenting now is it, it's a, It'll never end. It doesn't matter what age there are, they are at. It never ends. You know, there's a great movie. Um, it was a Steve Martin movie um, called Parenthood. Yes, and, yes. And uh, Steve Martin is sort of the good son. And uh, Jason Robards is the father. And I, I think it's Tom Hulse is the son that has consistently <laughs> screwed up everything in his life. And Steve Martin becomes frustrated and expresses to his father, Jason Robards, how come he gets all the attention? I'm the good one. And the father basically says, he needs more of me than you do, you know, and you never stop being a parent. And, and I always remembered that line. And I said, wow, you know, it's, there's a lot of truth to that. And um, yeah, I mean, obviously your, your kids became, become increasingly uh, independent if you've, if you've done a good job as a parent, but it doesn't mean that you're not still engaged with their life and, and you want to be part of their life. And uh, you know, if, if you're able to, at an older age, still have your children enjoy being around you, I mean that's the trifecta right there. Yeah, that's a big that's a big plus. And, and there's something else I wanted to touch on that you had said a few minutes ago too is that I I think over this last year, and I've had this conversation with with um, with all sorts of parents, and that's a, the one, the great thing about being in the industry that I am and do what I do um, is I have all these families I work with that are at various stages in their life. I've seen kids grow up uh, that I've worked with. Now I work with them. I have you know families that have kids similar ages to mine. I have similar kids that are in college. And the one thing I think over this past year, I've really tried to focus on, and again, I'm probably goes back to being too hard on yourself, is I know that these moments are fleeting. And I, and I realize that 12 and 10 years old, like you said, blink of an eye, they're going to be gone. And I look forward to that idea of having those relationships with, with my kids as grown adults, but I'm trying really hard not to like get there. Like right now, like to try to hold on to these moments, because as everybody says, like even, even the bad 
well, not necessarily maybe the bad times, but most of the time you're going to want those days back. And there's a country song and I forget who sings it, maybe yeah. Trace Atkins. And you, you go around and around about, you know, how babies are crying and, you know, you know, HVAC blew up or whatever. Like you're going to want those days back. And it kind of goes back to um, the, the song, the cats in the cradle. And yeah. I, uh, I've really, again, tried hard to stick with that and, and make sure that I'm spending that, that time with them, whether they want it or not. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to put that all in perspective when you're younger. I mean, I remember we had three kids and, you know, on the weekends we're at the soccer field, you know, or piano recital or, you know, who knows what. And, and we met some wonderful people and had some great social interaction with other parents on the sidelines. And it was a joy watching our kids compete. I mean, I had more joy out of watching my kids in sports than when I think back of my own involvement in sports. And, you know, sometimes you think back and say, gosh, those were really good times. But in many ways, they were a pain in the ass. You know? <laughs> it's Saturday morning, we want to, you know, have our coffee and a breakfast and sleep in or whatever, and not a chance. We're up and off and running, you know, and that's just part of life. And you know, you can say, I want to slow it down or I want to speed it up. It doesn't matter what you want. It's going to happen at its own pace and it's inevitable and you can't stop it. And, you know, just like aging is, I'm at a point now, you know, where, you know, I can't do things as well as I used to. I'm, I'm not as uh, physically fit and uh, not as limber or, or balanced or whatever. And, you know, you just say, well, it's part of that you can stave off, but part of it's, you know, uh, the, the, the march of time and, and, and it affects it has on you. So you, you know, I, I always love the, the concept of the person that le- lives every day to the fullest, but I mean, I, I, it's a bit of a, you know, I don't know how many people that really, really do that. I mean, I, I know people, a lot of people say it, but you know, we, we just have to get by, you know, we all uh, are, are pulled in different directions, even as a retiree, you know, there's demands on your time and, and your energies and, you know, you just go along and do it. But I, I do think responsible, good human beings, parents are way too hard on themselves, you know, way too hard on themselves. And, and we expect far more than is probably practically possible <laughs> for whatever that's worth. But, you know, the, the thing is really, you know, we, we get into the communication thing. It's, it's, it's listening and, and reflecting back. You know, we have a tendency as humans to say, uh, I hear you. I hear you. But we really need to adopt what we call active listening, you know, which goes back to Carl Rogers and, the, you know, the, the counseling field. And active listening means the way we respond acknowledges and demonstrates that we've heard. In other words, if you, if you tell me a, a, a story, you know, about uh, your triplets being born, you know, and if I say it back to you and I say, well, you know, is on on, uh, what was it, December so-and-so in 2010, and you were in the NICU, and the doctor came to you. And if I get all that back to you, and reasonably correct, you're going to say, well, that that old fart was listening, you (laughs) know? Yeah. He was listening. And then if I add on that layer, and it was such an exciting time for you to bring these three beautiful children into the world, and it was so special for you and your wife, you'll never forget it. Probably one of the best, if not the best day of your life. And if I nail that, when I tell that story back to you, I'm not just saying I've listened, I've proven it, I've demonstrated it. So we talk, we talk about in, in my field, uh, it, it's a sort of a donut. Um, you know, if you think of the, or, or an M&M candy is a better illustration. If you think of the chocolate in the middle, that's the story. That's, that's what happened, you know, in such and such a date, you went here and you did this and you did that. But the candy coating around that chocolate, uh, using the M&M metaphor, uh, that's how you felt about it, the impact it had on you, the feelings it evoked. Now, when we respond to people, if we can remember, I've got two parts of this I have to acknowledge. You know, when my grandsons come up and talk to me about a soccer game they were in, and he saved the goal, you know, and they won the game, well, you know, I not only you know, try to repeat what I know about the circumstance under which that happened, but how excited he was and how good that made him feel. That's how we communicate. That, and that's how we are effective. People want to be listened to. They want to be understood. 
They want to be appreciated and valued and acknowledged. It's the cheapest thing we can do in a relationship. And I don't mean cheap as in of bad quality. I mean, it costs us nothing. And it in turn uh, sets us up for those people to inquire and be interested in us and the story that we want to share with them. It's really important to relationship building. You know, when, when you and Teresa go to a social function, next time you're in the neighborhood and you go to somebody's house and there's some new neighbors there you've never met. And she's in the kitchen with, with other people and you're out in the living room with a bunch of other people talking about something else. And there's a new person there. Doesn't matter the gender, whatever. They're in your little circle of conversation. And you say, I don't really know that person very well. And I think this is a good opportunity for me. I met him once briefly, but I'd like to know more about him. And to find out where they're from, what's their journey. And you'll be shocked at the amazing things you learn about people. And there's probably going to be several points of commonality. Now, you may end up with somebody that you hate their guts, you know, and that's, that's, <laughs> that's going to happen too. But, you know, for really valuable, well, I'll give you an example. There's a, there's a person I met not long ago, and my first impressions were very, very negative. I just said, uh, this is not m- my kind of person. But after a couple more interactions, I really like that person now because I've come to appreciate, I've listened, I've tried to understand their frame of reference. And now I better understand the nature of their type of humor that I didn't pick up on right away, surprisingly. I usually am pretty good at that. But it just goes to show you, you know, that, you know, even the worst criminal I used to have to deal with, the most incorrigible, despicable human being, there's something good about them somewhere. You know, and if you search for that and find some common connection, because in my old business, when we made that connection and when we were genuine and sincere, all of a sudden you'd hear people say like, Gary, I don't don't know how to get out of this. Well, my ears are picking up that now this person is soliciting my advice and now I can be suggestive. So, well, you know, I know that hurting anybody else isn't going to help your situation. And I I really don't want to see you get hurt either. I'd, I'd like to help you. And here's, here's some things you might consider doing. You know, I have to earn the right to get to that point where I can offer those pieces of advice. If you just show up as a negotiator and say, hey, listen, jerk, you know, you let those people go. We're going to come in and kill you. That's your choices. Well, that's just going to evoke a, a very defensive, uh, a, a aggressive response. And that's not what we want. I always think about I have to earn the right. I have to demonstrate to someone else that I'm worthy of their respect. And you do that by giving. Do you, this is actually, I was going to try to bring this back to, to this. How do you keep your emotions in check? And I think you kind of just walk through that, but Gary, do you, do you think it's the same way with, with your spouse and your, in your, in your kids? Like, how do you, how do you make that connection? Cause I, cause when I was listening to you, I'm, I was, I'm just like thinking in my, okay, how do I do this with Teresa? How do I do this with the kids? <laughs> It, it's tough with a spouse and my wife and I, like every other couple, we've been married 48 years. I mean, we certainly had our challenges and a good bit of it is because uh, when we're in our careers, like you and Teresa are, you're totally focused on career and raising those little urchins, you know, and making them great human beings, feeding them, clothing them, educating them, giving them experiences. And one day when they're gone, you're at the table and you look across at this beautiful lady and you say, who are you? Who are again? you? Yes. Yeah. I, you look familiar to me, but because we tend to put our, our relationships on a back burner because we have other demands on our time and energy. No, and I think couples are well advised and, you know, I, I'm not saying I'm the expert here. I've certainly fallen flat on my face in this regard. But I think you have to make the time for, for each other. And uh, you know, I'm going to get yelled at on this podcast because, uh, you know, saying there's differences between men and women. But, um, you know, men are uh, tend to be, generally speaking, typically problem solvers. <laughs> yes. Problem solvers. You know, she comes to you and here's an issue. And you say, ah, OK, you do this, you do that. Problem solved. What's the next problem? Hon? You know, and and. And that's not really what they want. The, right. uh, women, women are, are tend, generally are more engaged in, in the, the feeling aspect of what's going on and, and making sure you understand how they feel. She has a problem at work and brings it home. And you, you're just all over solving the problem for her. 
It's not really what you want. I, you I want swear. To- have you been living in my house, Gary? Because <laughs> because I, Teresa and I have been having, and she's going to like, boy, you talked a lot about me on this podcast with, with, with this Gary Nessner guy. I'm like, but seriously, like we have been talking about this for probably the last month. It's been a real focus point. And I've been trying to change where she comes to me, wants to talk. And that's all she wants to do. She wants to talk. She just wants me to listen to her. And I've got to like really try hard not to go into Paul Fenner problem solving mode. And and I've actually said, okay, do you need me to help you with this problem or do you just need me to listen? And sometimes I'm successful in getting that out before I go into problem solving mode, but sometimes I'm I'm not. But this is you're spot on with what we're going through right now. The only thing I would suggest is don't ask her if she wants you to listen. Just do it. <laughs> Just do it. I'm going to refer you to an amazing, funny video. It's called "It's All About the Nail," and um, uh, it uh, for for all your listeners. Now, I, I don't think it'll take anything away from it, but this this woman is sitting on the couch with her husband, and she's talking about. And she's got a nail sticking out of the middle of her her head, and she's talking about all these problems. She's having headaches, and he says, "Well, it's." It's there, there you are trying to solve my problem. You know, it's a beautiful illustration. Um, it's a real short little video, but it's the cutest thing I've ever seen. And, it, and it's explained so well. And after a while, he finally gets saying, well, um, that must have felt bad when the nail was in your head. He's struggling to to be a good listener. And, you know, the problem's so obvious to everybody, but it's it's quite cute. But, yeah, I mean, I think uh, we're all going to come up short on on that equation. I mean, the the, the you know, uh, it, it's so true that um, it's the thing we take the most granted for granted of it is our relationship. Okay, this one's, you know, we got the rings on. We went through the ceremony. We had the honeymoon. Okay, we're good. We're good. Now, let's devote to these kids and buying this new car and the nice house in the suburbs and going on vacation to Disney World, whatever it is that you do. But then all of a sudden, you got to remember, oh, <laughs> there's this other human being here that uh, we need to connect with. And, um, you know, most Arguments are over money, um, you know, uh, between couples and child rearing. Yeah, and and I think the biggest bit of good fortune I had is my wife and I, pretty across the board for all these years, have not had disagreements in those two typically key areas of problems, and that that's probably stood us well because my demanding career created <laughs> m- many additional ones beyond that. You know, you, sometimes you just just had to go and vacations canceled and events canceled and so forth and so on. But, but I think um, it's certainly time to work. I know some couples would say, you know, every, you know, every day at a certain time, we're going to sit down and and spend some time just the two of us. Uh, You know, I think going out on a date night with your spouse, um, you know, hiring a babysitter and uh, you know, just saying, Hey, we're, and you have to do it in a routine fashion. Otherwise you just say you're going to do it and you never get around. You never do it. Yep. Yeah. So you got to make it part of a routine. And, uh, you know, it's it's a tough adjustment. And then you move into a phase of life, which you will someday that I'm in, where I don't go to work and she doesn't go to work and we're around each other, you know, basically all day long. So, you know, that's a whole new dynamic. You know, now now you have each other in, on steroids and, uh, you know, you we have our individual activities where we, we have alone time. Some I play golf, she plays pickleball, whatever. That's fine. But you really do need, uh, and, and I don't want any of your viewers to say, oh, this guy's so wise. He must have a perfect life. I mean, I screw this stuff up all the time. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm the old guy that says, you know, don't, don't do what I do. Do as I, do I say, you know, uh, but, but we all have to work at that constantly. And I, I, I just don't think for 99.9% of the human population, anybody ever gets this perfect and it stays that way. Um, if they do, they're probably pretty boring people. But um, <laughs> They just, you know, and it's okay to have a little separation time from your spouse. You know, if you have an activity that you like and she doesn't like and she has one, support each other. That's okay. You know, the old thing about, um, you know, uh, absence makes the heart sound good. I I used to joke people. I said, you know, I was in the the FBI 30 years. I said, but I was only home 15. And that uh, (laughs) that really helped us. So anyway, I'm I'm babbling on here. But, um, you know, I I just... um, I think these are things that are really worth thinking about. I think they're important things in our life. And um, I hope I'm getting better as I've gotten older. I'm, 
I would call myself a work in progress, even <laughs> with all the water that's passed over this dam or whatever you want to say, or the water under the bridge. I don't know how you say it, but uh, yeah. So I want to, I could, I, I don't, I know I only have you for a finite period of time, but I could keep going with, with, with all my questions and, and things that you, you picked up on. But I, I do want to circle back to one thing that I, I wanted you to talk about is, is your book stalling for time. Could you provide us like, or give us a, insight on like one or two like key takeaways that you would want us to 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 take away from the book when we read it i think um what i talk about cases i work but within those incident uh, chapters you know i try to embed as many uh takeaway lessons as i can you know i don't formally lay it out here's lesson one two three four but i'm hoping when somebody reads this they can they can easily discern what it is I'm talking about that has transferability and more broadly in life. I think maybe the most important thing is self-control. And um, I think it's the cornerstone to being a good communicator. And the premise being, if you can't uh, control your own emotions, how can you begin to expect to influence someone else? And, and you stop to think about it. You know, your, your kids are, are misbehaving and you lose your cool and start yelling and screaming, well, you know, the battle's over, you've lost. Uh, you know, uh, so, so we, have to, we have to keep control of that. Now, for some people that comes natural. For other people- Like myself, you know, it does not. <laughs> you know, for other people, you have to work on it. And there's some people that frankly, probably never be good at it. They, they just don't have that level of self-control. But that's really important. You know, the, um, when we look at, at child rearing or, or other kinds of, conflict, not the child rearing is all conflicts, but it's quite, quite a common uh, factor. You think of the childhood uh, play yard, a teeter-totter, the seesaw, you know, one kid's yep. up, one kid's down. And this is the greatest graph. Uh, and I don't know who invented it, so, uh, but, but I've been using it for, you know, 40-something years. If you look at this, when emotions are high, okay, this is the, the, the baseline. When emotions are high, rational thinking and behavior are low. And I would argue that's irrefutable. I mean, you, you cannot uh, argue against that given. When we are angry, charged up, red in the face, you know, smoke out of your ears, whatever you want to say, we are not thinking and behaving in a rational manner. The key to resolving conflict or minimizing the damages from it are is to first focus all your energy on lowering the emotional. And look what happens when I do that. The, the emotions come down and rational thinking and behavior rise. I think it's a really good thing to remember. Um, you know, that's our first task. I mean, if, if um, you know, let, let's say you're, you're in that social function that I, I used as a, as a metaphor earlier, and, and you know, you've got somebody that's on the other end of the political spectrum, and they're all in a tizzy and angry over something you said, well, you know, you had a couple choices. You can say, well, have a great night and walk away. Or, you know, or, or you can try to respond to them in a way that serves to lower that emotional content. You know, say, hey, I can, I can tell this is a very uh, uh, important issue for you. You feel very passionate about it. And I'm, I'm sorry if anything I said offended, but, I, you know, I'm happy to discuss it with you. You know, could you explain to me how, um, how you, uh, you know, you, you feel about that particular issue again. I'm not sure if I fully understood you before. Anything that of itself makes it harder and harder for that person to continue the high level of argument of arguing because you have now, you know, kind of tried to lower the temperature. And and I think that's that's a good way. So self control is very important. You know, in in my book, one of the I start each chapter with a quote, and it's my very favorite quote of all time from Rudyard Kipling. It's a partial quote. It says, if you can keep your head about you and all else are losing theirs, that's the attribute of a good negotiator, but it's also the attribute of a, an effective communicator writ large. You know, I mean, if you can, you know, I'm not saying emotions are always a bad thing. It's, a, it's, it's fine to feel passionate about something, but how you, how you control that and how you channel that is what's really important. If you just get into a wild outburst and attack somebody um, instead of deal with the issue, then you know you've, you've lost already. You've just lost. Um, so I think self-control is the clearly the most thing. And then asking again about my book and some of the lessons, 
we already talked about listening. There's two parts of listening that I think your listeners can really um, try to work on and, and listen. One is called, when you're responding to somebody, a restatement of content. Restatement of content. And the other is a reflection of emotions. So it's the same concept as that M&M candy I spoke about earlier. So when you're telling me about, you know, some issue, some problem, some concern, it's important that I paraphrase in my own words what it is that you told me, the story. You know, what, 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 is, what is the issue that has, you know, uh, drawn your attention and raised your concerns and raised your emotional uh, reaction, whatever. And then and a second piece of that to reflect the emotions that that issue has evoked. It sounds so simple and some people do it quite naturally, but if you consciously think about when I'm responding to someone, it doesn't have to be a negative thing. You can have a friend of yours that just got back from a vacation in, uh, you know, uh, in, in Italy, you know, and you say, Hey, where did you go in Italy? Well, we went here and there and, well, what did you like about it? Well, we just love going to uh, the Amalfi Coast. And well, what was it that you found so exciting? You hear them get all excited about a, a place they visited, an experience they had, you know, a restaurant they attended. And you feel, wow, it sounds like that place was amazing. They go, yes, it was. You should have been there. Oh, man, I wish I could have seen that. You know, you are really demonstrating quite clearly that you're there with them uh, revisiting that experience. and. And they now feel like they really appreciated and understood what I was sharing with them. And that makes people feel good. And it's not cheap. It's not tawdry. It's not contrived. I mean, do it sincerely and, and genuinely. And it makes you, you know, at the end of that conversation, that person will say to someone else, you know, that Gary was, uh, I really enjoyed talking to him about that. He, he really was kind of fun person to hang around with. Bingo, you know, you, you've done it. And, and again, I think if people do this in a manipulative way, you know, I, I deal with a lot of business negotiation experts now. I mean, they're all over the place on LinkedIn and, and, and Facebook. And, and they all have really interesting and good approaches and, and information. But for me, sometimes they're too prescriptive about always do this, set this up, don't offer this before they do that. And, you know, for somebody involved in a, a very Type business negotiation. I'm not criticizing that at all, but for me, it's more basic than that. It, it's, you know, if, if you're in sales uh, or acquisitions or, or whatever you're doing, it's all about the relationship. Everything in life is about relationship. We're social animals. We depend on each other. We need each other. We cannot do it alone in whatever walk of life you're in. So, you know, if you practice these skills, and realize that, you know, building this relationship will more likely than not lead to good outcomes. Because if I'm trying to give out a contract for my company, am I going to go with you who I really like and enjoy, or some guy that I don't fully quite trust that doesn't seem to really care about what I'm interested in, he just wants to tell me what he's prepared to do for me. Those are the things that make a difference. Um, you know, and, and I think it's important for people to remember that. So, you know, restatement of contact, tent, content, the story, reflection of emotions, the feelings, and keeping your self-control in all kinds of situations. The, you know, you can read hundreds of pages uh, in books, but that's the core of it. That's, that's the basis of it. And, you know, even the business guru, Stephen Covey, says, seek first to understand and then to be understood. So, you know, make an investment in time and energy because people will respond in kind. If you have given them the time and uh, attention to tell you, to share with you, to, you know, illustrate whatever it might be, then eventually they will give you that same time because they've come to respect you and you're genuine. I mean, the attributes of a great negotiator, genuineness, sincerity, uh, reliability, trustworthiness. It's almost like the Boy Scout code, you know, um, and, and all these different things that make us uh, be seen as decent, good human beings that people want to work with. 
Well, Gary, like I said, I could keep going for like another hour at least, but let me, let me bring us to our closing question, which I, I ask all my guests, but I'm going to, I'm going to do yours in a little bit of a twist. Usually I ask what's the best thing about being a parent, but I know you have these, uh, these, uh, 10 grand, seven grandkids, right? Seven. seven grandkids. Um, what is the best thing about being a grandparent? You know, I, I think the, the time I have with them now, when I don't remember this as well when my kids were growing up now, we're going back almost 40 years, but I so am intrigued by the development of the human being. When I see my grandchildren, when they're little and develop motor skills and language skills and now social skills and how they engage, you know, I'll be sitting in the front porch and I'm watching two cousins having a little argument or a disagreement or trying to figure out who gets to play with that particular toy next. There's only one of them. And I'm just fascinated by the whole damn thing because it's so predictive of where we end up as adults. And we were learning these things. You know, it's like, uh, you, you know, I'm a sucker for these uh, animal videos on YouTube, you know, and you'll see two tigers, you know, pup playing with a puppy or something like that. And it looks so cute and it's funny. And all that. But they're learning how to pounce and, and hunt in that process. They're not doing it yet, but it's a precursor. And that's kind of what you see with the, the kids. So that's, I think that's the thing I enjoy most about my grandkids, you know, and um, it, it's just fun to watch as they become better swimmers. Cause we live on a lake, you know, so we see them in the water all the time, or they learning uh, you know, how to do dive off the, off the dock and, and all that stuff, which I just took as routine before. Now I'm fascinated by it. Well, this has been this has been an absolute pleasure, Gary. I I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you get a lot of requests like this, so I'm I'm glad that you uh, decided to spend some time with with us on the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast. But I can't thank you enough for uh, for the time, and uh, I really look forward to our next conversation. Yeah, and tell Teresa, you know, not be not to be mad at me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I'll be, I'll be sure to let her know. <laughs> Very good. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Mm-hmm.